0: We're the forward edge of the sludge. You know, and I I think about like a volcano on Hawaii, you know, where you see the lava just moving slowly. What if that's what we are, the forward edge of the sludge of a purely material evolution? What if we don't have souls? What if we aren't spiritual beings at all? What becomes of inherent, high, and equal value? What becomes of it?
1: You become a real nowhere man, you know, sitting in your nowhere land, making lots of nowhere plans with nobody, right? I mean... (laughs) Why would you even get up in the morning? Welcome to another seaworthy episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swain, along with my colleague Ken Hensley. Neither of us were atheists, really. I mean, Ken was a Baptist pastor, although he became a Christian in his younger years. Um, I'm basically a lifelong Christian, but we're talking today about some stuff. We're continuing a series, really, uh, on uh, discussing faith with people who don't believe in the supernatural. If you want to come and visit us, Mm -hmm. the place to find us is chnetwork.org, and especially... Community ch dot, I'm sorry. community.chnetwork.org. Ken, you ready to crank back into week two?
0: Yes, and I hope my internet holds up good. We, we had a little bit of a problem. Um, okay, let me begin by qu- quoting from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, something we read last week. The desire for God is written on the human heart. That's saying a lot. <laughs> the desire for God is written on the human heart because man is created by God and for God, and God never ceases to draw man to himself. Only in God will he find the truth and happiness he never stops searching for. Okay, last week we talked about the tension that we believe the atheist lives with, that is the tension between who he really is as the image and likeness of God and what he says is true about the world in which we live, that is that nothing exists but material, nature, nature, Particles, Um, I think that the secret to the profound effect that Jesus had on people, um, and not not just his words, his actions, his very presence—the profound effect he had—is that by his very presence, he reminded them of things that along the way they had forgotten, but things that deep in their hearts they knew. He reminded them of the God in whose image they had been created. He reminded them of who this God had created them to be and who this God was calling them to be. He reminded them of the answer really to their continual search for truth and happiness that the catechism talks about. And so evangelism was reminding people who they really are and who in their heart of hearts they know themselves to be. Well, I tend to look at evangelism and, and apologetics even, Matt, in the same way. I view it as the work of reminding people of who they are, of what they've been called to be, and, and of where truth and happiness are to be found. Um, after all, according to the teaching of Scripture, and this is what we looked at last week, every one of us um, at, at the deepest level knows the God who made us. This is what Scripture teaches. St. Paul, in fact, tells us that the evidence for the existence and nature of God is so clear, he says that one must suppress it. You have to actually suppress it in order to escape this knowledge. I'm referring to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, where Paul writes, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. In other words, just summing this up again, um, in our heart of hearts, every one of us knows that we are more than mere biological machines. Every one of us knows that there is something alien about us. There is some sense in which what we are, or who we are, goes beyond nature. Now, when it comes to doing apologetics, then, Matt, um, with those who doubt or deny the existence of God, atheist agnostic, I like to think of apologetics as the, the fine art of putting my finger on this tension that exists between the person that I'm speaking with, who this person really is as made in the image and likeness of God, the tension that exists between that and what he or she says he or she believes about the world in which we live, the material that is that the material world is all that exists. And just a couple of illustrations quickly before we get to what we're really going to be talking about today. Subjects we're going to be hitting in coming weeks. For instance, we'll be getting to this one, in fact, next week. I believe that the atheist, my atheist friend, knows that moral absolutes exist. Even the man who commits murder thinks it's wrong if you turn around and murder his mother or his grandmother. But if atheism were true, there would be no moral absolutes. And this is something thoughtful atheists admit to be the case. I'll give you one quotation. This is from atheist philosopher Michael Roos, who writes Morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction. Morality is an ephemeral product of the evolutionary process. It has no existence or being beyond this and any deeper meaning is illusory. Um, Another quick illustration, something that we'll be talking about a few weeks down the road. Um, I believe that my atheist friend knows that he is more than, that is that he as a person is more than uh, electrochemical processes taking place in a pile of meat between his skull and his brain. And And yet, if we are nothing more than the products of a material world, then well, to quote Molecular biologist and atheist Francis Crick, you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories, your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact nothing more, no more, he says, than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Okay, now in this series, Matt, over the coming weeks, you and I uh, plan to elaborate in some detail on a number of various ways in which what the atheist says he believes about the nature of reality puts him into inescapable tension with what is true and with, I will argue, what he knows to be true as the image and likeness of God. But these are a couple of examples. Today, you and I are going to focus on the unique value of human life and spend some time on that.
1: Well, good, because uh, there are... um This has come up recently in RCIA because you were talking about, you know, the paragraphs uh, in the 200s through the mid-300s that Mm -hmm. talk about, you know, what does it mean to understand God in a certain way? Well, we have to understand kind of ourselves to get a sense of, well, just like you'd study any painting, to get to know a little Mm -hmm. bit about what the painter must be like. What's the painter thinking? Uh, And so, really, this is kind of a starting point that you have to have. Like, I mean, this is the best kind of information that God has given us about Mm -hmm. Who he is, is by the way he made the most complicated and unique creature on the face of planet Earth, which is you and me. I mean, and the fact that we're asking Mm -hmm. this, again, like I say, woodchucks are not having this conversation right now. Chameleons and earthworms and even bottlenose dolphins are not having this conversation right now.
0: (laughs) I think a woodchuck would if a if a woodchuck if they could, could right
1: right but how much if would they, they wood. talk about this That's the real question.
0: <laughs> and dolphins and all the thing. oh yeah okay so today exactly right and today we're focusing on the value of human life and let me begin with a little story a little reminder of mine because I still remember hearing the news. Um, it was July of two thousand and two, which which means you were probably like three months old, right? Um, Anyway, an explosion, Matt, had ripped through a coal mine in Pennsylvania, and there were nine miners that were trapped 240 feet below the earth in a dark, partially flooded mine shaft. And this was a big deal. And I remember it was astonishing, the rescue effort that was immediately launched. I mean, engineers were brought in to examine the situation, to make recommendations. Environmental scientists were brought in to run tests on groundwater to try and figure out how they could drill. Um, Massive drilling equipment came in, men that could operate it. Even the U.S. Navy was wheeled in, Matt, supplying underwater experts and decompression chambers in hope that the men could be brought up alive. And for three days, I, I remember this well, Basically, all of America sat just transfixed in front of their TV sets as engineers drilled a narrow mine shaft. I mean, this is the only thing they could do, Matt. 240 feet down, they drilled a narrow mine shaft down, trying to calculate exactly where the men were. Um, the entire world was watching. And here's the thing if they miscalculated the angle and they missed the little compartment where the men were living, nine miners, it would be too late to drill again. They couldn't start again. The men would run out of air and that would be the, the end of them. So so again, this was a big deal. And I remember the entire country being involved in watching. Well, they did the drilling and they were successful. And I, and I still remember clearly when they began to bring these men up through this narrow hole, one by one, that they had drilled. And the guys came up, you know, this filthy and barely, barely alive. I mean, it, it was impossible to remain um, unmoved. It was impossible. And so think about this for just a second. Nine miners, men that none of us had ever seen before, men that none of us knew from Adam, that we didn't know from Adam, um, and yet there basically was not a dry eye in America when the news showed the footage of these men being brought up. In fact, I remember a billboard appeared in Pennsylvania that simply read, God gave us a miracle. And the, the point that I make with this, the, the point that's impressed on me is, is that it's clear that in general, we human beings share a universal intuition and a strong belief in the unique value of human life. I mean, we speak very naturally all the time of people possessing inherent, intrinsic value. That is a, a value that actually exists in them not a value that we just subjectively assign to them or might not assign to them. Um, We speak of them as possessing high value, um, even of equal value. We speak of human beings as possessing equal value. We talk about the dignity that each person deserves. We use words like priceless and precious to describe our children and our grandchildren. And all all that to say that except in the case where someone's conscience has been absolutely deadened, this is how we naturally think and this is how we speak and the first point i want to make is simply this the christian worldview makes sense of our experience in this regard in entirely because if god exists and if god created you and i in his image and likeness then we do possess an inherent value high value and equal value as everyone has been made in the image and likeness of god And this is what the word of God teaches us, quoting from Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And all this to say that the worldview that we hold as Christians, as theists, provides a, to use philosophical jargon, provides a metaphysical basis for what we seem to intuitively know to be true. In other words, if, if God exists, and if you and I have been made in God's image, then it is rational a true metaphysical basis has been laid. It's rational for us to believe that human beings possess inherent, high, and equal value. And the reason I would say that we intuitively know this is, is the passage we read from um, from the catechism. It's because God has etched this truth into our very beings, and it's it's something that we simply know. It's something that everyone knows. And because of this, I can approach the atheist, I can approach someone who denies the existence of God believing that he knows this as well because he is the image of god as much as i am
1: well just to give you an idea of um i mean we've we've talked uh we talked actually in the last episode about how this is more and more the case that people uh doubt or deny the existence of god that's sort of a fairly new development in human history that people reject the idea Mm -hmm. of god or reject the metaphysical or the supernatural reality of something beyond just the material world uh, as a matter of fact, you read from Psalm chapter 8, uh, you know, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful mm-hmm. of him? Uh, that's, I mean, in 1969, Buzz Aldrin read that on the spaceship coming back from mm-hmm. the Apollo 11 landing, <laughs> right? Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it, there was actually, mm-hmm. with, on Apollo 13, the astronauts did like a. A group reading of Genesis chapter one, uh, yeah. th- there's this, uh, you know, sense that, you know, everybody kind of gets the fact that this is mysterious and, and, and beyond our understanding, but somehow, um, I think that there's this illusion that the better the technology gets, the more we can just say, oh, we can explain this away. Mm-hmm. And it's not because we have mm-hmm. actually explained mm-hmm. it away. It's because maybe we have a, well, what's the word? maybe faith, that one day science will explain everything, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's itself a form of faith. But in the meantime, um, you know, we still can't, I mean, we've had a Journey Home episode with Pat Flynn. We're getting ready to have a Journey Home episode with his wife, Christine, both Mm -hmm. who are atheists, and then when they had their first baby, they had to deal Mm -hmm. with, like, Mm -hmm. the fact that they rationally understood, you know, from their atheist perspective, that this is just bringing another member of the species, you know, onto the world but in terms yeah. of like their human reaction their human reaction was something very different like <laughs> as christine will put it in your ep- her episode when it airs she's yeah. like i looked at this baby and it's like i would kill for you <laughs> right i would die for you yeah. Yeah. i mean yeah. that's that's beyond yeah. mere like evolutionary
0: response yeah yeah see see and that okay that's what's being said it, it, so far here today it, it is we all seem to intuitively, naturally believe in the special, high, and equal value of human life. And every mother, every father whose baby comes in the world says that. Yeah, you know, immediately, I would die for you. It's you know, not mere survival; precious. it's Talking. You're a yeah, tre- yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And what I'm saying here so far is that the Christian worldview, the Christian theistic worldview, makes sense of this belief entirely. Not only does it make sense of it, it it provides an actual rational metaphysical foundation for it, because if God exists and we've been made in God's image, then we do have, we do have this special value, high value, equal value. Okay, but what if atheism is true? Let's look at it the other way around. What if nature is all there is? And let me press this with, you know, with these rhetorical questions. What if the universe that you and I live in, to quote atheist philosopher John Searle that we read last week... What if this universe really is, quote, a universe that consists entirely of mindless, meaningless, unfree, non-rational, brute, physical particles? And let me make this e- more personal. What if you and I really are nothing more, I mean, nothing more than extremely complicated biochemical machines that appear for just a moment in this universe, you know, uh gears spinning like crazy, and then we just sort of fade out and disappear. What if we really have come from nowhere? I mean, you have to think about this. We have to enter into the atheist worldview and really think about what would be true. What if we really have come from nowhere, and we really are going nowhere, ultimately? What if we really are nothing more than the product of an entirely impersonal material universe, or as one of my friends used to say, What if we really are nothing more than the forward edge of the sludge of evolution? That's it. We're the forward edge of the sludge. You know, and I think about like a volcano on Hawaii, you know, where you see the lava just moving slowly. What if that's what we are? The forward edge of the sludge of a purely material evolution? What if we don't have souls? What if we aren't spiritual beings at all? What becomes of inherent, high and equal value? What becomes of it?
1: You become a real nowhere man, you know, sitting in your nowhere land, making lots <laughs> of nowhere plans with nobody. Right? I mean, what? Yeah. Why would you even get up in the morning? I mean, it's it's yeah. a very difficult. I mean, why? I mean, I guess to eat, right? To yeah, provide, but to pay the, for shelter.
0: Well, yeah, ju- just to eat and stay alive, and try to try to eke some kind of a meaning out of this thing. Um, but, but that's the thing. If atheism is true, and this is something that we don't often think through, you know, the implications, but if materialism and nat- naturalism, atheism, if it were true, then the only value you and I would possess would be value that someone is willing to grant to us for the few moments that we have, you know, before the quicksand comes and sucks us down. Um, if atheism is true... You and I have no more inherent value than a toad or a toadstool. And this touches, I mean, just briefly on the pro-life thing. You know, because when I think about it, um, being pro-life follows naturally again and rationally from a Christian theistic worldview. God exists. Human life is created in the image and likeness of God. Of course, you protect human life and you're pro-life. But if you don't believe in God... Um, and you believe that this universe is just this huge material accident, and this thing forming in your pregnant body is just a you know, product of conception, then there is no inherent value. The only value that child has is value that the mother decides to give it. If the mother decides this has value, then it's, oh, my baby, this is my baby, my wonderful baby. If the mother decides it doesn't have value,
1: boom and the thing is
0: this this follows naturally from atheism
1: well this is a fascinating line of thought but it it also follows like well does an elderly person have value does a person with disabilities have value same thing do as a person who's in prison have value same Um, thing does a person who is probably uh, mentally ill Mm -hmm. and is never going to get a a really productive job in society have value i mean it extends to all of these different reaches but i'm I'm fascinated by this question, but I, i we had on uh, the journey home and I've, this is the second time we've had a bunch of former atheists who have Mm -hmm. wrestled with this on the journey home over the years. And one of them was Dr. Alicia Thompson, who is an OBGYN. And she was studying Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. as an agnostic, you know, whether or not to do abortions. Uh, And she was wrestling with this question. And at the same time, she was wrestling with with this question of whether to do abortions. Um, She was also wrestling with her sense of her own value. And she felt like she didn't have much value because she didn't feel like the people in her life valued her. And so grappling with Mm -hmm. that question, like, do I only have value based on whether the people around me assign value to me? Because that's essentially the question I'm asking in the case of abortion. Does this life only have value based on the value Mm -hmm. that I assign to it? And if that only has value based on the value I personally assign to it, maybe I have no value. Because I don't see, I don't
0: see people around yeah, me I,
1: giving me much value. It's yeah, she was in a, a state of despair. Yeah, we're
0: thinking, and we're thinking in terms of worldview, and and what what I am saying is that this flows naturally from your worldview, and so it's true that if God doesn't exist and we're just you know accidents, then the only value we have is value that people subjectively have assigned to us. I remember in a great book on abortion by. Um, by a catholic writer called rachel weeping uh, he, he says it in a really eerie creepy way he says that when it comes to the unborn child that um that if the unborn child broadcasts enough emotional appeal to, to its mother then it can live but if it doesn't then it doesn't then it doesn't get to live oh okay so this follows from atheism and this is something that atheists are willing to admit consistent atheists. So I'm, uh, this is not a Christian pushing this on atheists. This is something that atheists freely admit, those that are consistent. Listen to how casually, in fact, Ingrid Newkirk, president of PETA, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and an atheist, listen to how casually she speaks of the inescapable implication of her atheism. Quoting her, animal liberationists do not separate out the human animal. A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy they are all mammals and i i, I read this matt and, and i wonder does this mean that if she were to run into a burning building and uh in one corner there was a little girl sitting and trembling and in another corner there was a rat does this mean that she would ha- you know have to look back and forth a few times to try and figure out which one to save i mean i think is, is this what what she's it really means saying? is
1: that she probably would not run into the building in the first place at all <laughs> right <Yeah>. I mean,
0: <laughs> yeah and yeah, and I'll say the other way around, that because she is the image and likeness of God, she would run into the building and she would go straight for the little child. You're
1: probably right, she would. Because she's the image she and of God,
0: no matter, sure. what she, no, no matter what she says. Okay, here's how another atheist philosopher named James Rachels puts it. As Darwin clearly recognized, we are not entitled, not on evolutionary grounds at any rate, to regard our own adaptive behavior as better or higher than that of a cockroach, who, after all, is adapted equally well to life in his own environmental niche. Okay, <laughs> think, think through these quotations a couple of times. You know, These are things that atheists are saying and consistent f- philosophers. But allow the meaning of these things to sink in. I mean, really kind of chew on it. This is what one is required to accept as true on a materialist foundation. This is what simply is true if there's no God And we are merely the accidental products of nature. In fact, to push it a step further, among the circle of consistent naturalists, to deny the equal value of all living creatures is to commit the grave sin of speciesism. Now, here's how PETA, uh, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, here's how they define speciesism. Speciesism is a misguided belief That one species is more important than another. Okay? It's a misguided belief that one species is more important than another. This toxic mindset is deeply ingrained in our society. And I would go further and say it's deeply ingrained in the history of the human race because we're all made in the image and likeness of God. And we all know in our heart of hearts that human that that human life does have a unique, high, and intrinsic value. But Species, you know, those uh, speciesism is a misguided belief. It's this toxic mindset. It's a toxic mindset, Matt, that actually says that a human life is worth more than a rat's life or a snail darter. To the consistent naturalist, it is simply unwarranted. In fact, it's wrong to assign different values or rights. uh, Another subject we're going to get to in a few weeks. To individuals based on the species of which they are a member. Yeah. It's just unwarranted. It's unwarranted when you run into a burning building. It's unwarranted for you to choose the child over the rat. It really is. It's unwarranted. You're assigning a special value to it's just unwarranted, and it's wrong, which is an interesting thing because there's no foundation for mora- morality <laughs> in the well, worldview either. But I, I'm yeah. I'm less
1: concerned in this case with you know the the more extreme example, the theoretical example. I'm more concerned with the more practical, realistic example. Are these people covered in mosquito bites? Mm-hmm. You know because. Should you swat? Yeah. I mean, to, but the, but beyond that, I mean, oh. so so the the question would be too. You know, when we talk about these ideas of of protecting mm-hmm. the environment, you know, there is a Catholic basis for protecting and caring for creation. It comes from Genesis, yes, of course, chapter one. It comes from God gave Adam dominion over this thing, mm-hmm. and He said, "All right, mm-hmm. name these animals. You're supposed to take care of all this. This is your domain. Uh, yes. I made you in My image." Yes and this is my gift to you, and if you abuse it and mistreat it, it's not because, it's that's wrong not because all species are equal mm-hmm. and no one should take priority over any other, it's wrong because this is a gift given to you by me, and to abuse mm-hmm. it and to mistreat creation is a sin against the creator who gave it as a gift. It's not because a rat is a pig and it's a dog is a boy, right? I mean, that's a very different foundation For understanding why we treat creation with respect,
0: yes, and you've made a great point. And in fact, here's where there's so many ironies that that appear in this discussion because actually, from a Christian point of view, it makes sense that we would care for the creation because it's the gift of God to us, as you said. But from an atheist point of view, if the whole thing is just an accident, then. uh, and, and we are, and we have no in, inherent value either as human beings, then why care about the environment? Why care about creation? Why care about the planet at all? Okay, but which leads into the next question, because here's a question that I want to move to here. Is there any way to escape this implication of the naturalist worldview? This is a question I'm putting. Is there any way to escape the implication that if naturalism, materialism, atheism is true, then human beings have no inherent, high, equal value? Or let me put this the other way around. Is there any way to justify our belief that human beings possess inherent high and equal value without, without believing in God and our creation in God's image? And I won't go to a Christian source to answer this. I'll go again to an atheist, Peter Singer, famous atheist professor of bioethics at Princeton University, He would answer no. He doesn't think so. He doesn't think there's any way to justify our thinking that we possess inherent value without going to the Christian, basically Judeo-Christian worldview. As an atheist, in fact, he has admitted that the Judeo-Christian doctrine of man's creation in the image and likeness of God may be the only foundation there is to support such an idea, that is, that we possess inherent value, high value, equal value. And philosopher James Rachels agrees with that. This is what he says. He writes that with the rejection of the biblical worldview, quote, the traditional supports for the idea of human dignity are gone. They have not survived the colossal shift of perspective brought about by Darwin's theory. A Darwinian may conclude that a successful defense of human dignity is most unlikely. Listen to that. A Darwinian may conclude that a successful defense of human dignity is most unlikely. There's there, there's no defense that can be made on naturalist grounds, he's saying.
1: Not just may conclude, Darwinians, several Darwinists, Darwinists over the years have concluded, right, such. And we're yeah. going to get to that in a little bit. Have basically just taken the natural evolutionary survival of the fittest, um... Approach to this and said, "Okay, well, this is how we're going to run a government, <laughs> right? This is how we're going to yeah. um, orient our social morality and and everything else. I mean, this is a. It's not just a uh, that they may conclude yeah. that several of them have concluded that and have had catastrophic consequences for humanity as a result.
0: Yeah, and so let, let's push this just one final step. So much for inherent value." And so much for high value on an atheist worldview. What about equal value? Again, this is something that we all seem to believe in. I mean, whether theist or atheist, I mean, speaking generally, I would say, speaking generally, because there are always exceptions, everyone believes that we ought to treat people as though they possessed equal value, equal dignity. But can an atheist justify this belief on the basis of his worldview? And again, atheist philosopher Joel Feinberg spent some time thinking through this exact question from a naturalist perspective, and he would say no. This is the way he reasoned uh, in his article on this, in his book on this. Since people quite obviously have inequalities of gifting, inequalities of talent, ability, personality, character, inequalities in the contribution that they make to society, you referred to that a little while ago, some people that just don't contribute. Why is it, he asked in his study, Why is it that we seem to have this universal intuition and strong belief that each human being possesses equal value and should be treated with equal value? Why, he says. Fiber's conclusion is this. His conclusion is that this intuition and belief, however common it may be, has no grounding or basis whatsoever in the natural world. He, he basically says it's just some kind of irrational and unjustifiable attitude that we share. You know, some a subjective feeling that everyone seems to have um, uh, that is based on nothing. Because human beings obviously don't have equal value. They're different. Some mm-hmm. are smart, some are dumb. Some have gifts, some don't. Some are valuable and, uh, you know, and help with society, and some don't.
1: Yeah, and, uh, you so, know, Moan might say, well, what about, uh, you know, people in power needing people who are lower on the food chain to provide cheap labor and treat them as less valuable. That's a different question. What about people who aren't able to work at all? Do they have value? What about you once yeah, you're no longer able to work yourself? Do you still have value?
0: Pretty soon we're getting into Hitler and we're getting into the whole, you know, you No, we eugenics, always get to Hitler. Uh, world. It never takes yeah, very long we're always to get getting to into Hitler.
1: It. This is the internet. We're okay, going to get but, to Hitler eventually.
0: Can, Okay, let me uh, refer to one more more book here. I have a book that I like very, very much. It's on my shelf right over here. It's written by an evangelical philosopher named J.P. Moreland, and it has the cool title, The Recalcitrant Imago Dei, Human Persons and the Failure of Naturalism. Okay, I like that word recalcitrant. You know, we will sometimes use the word recalcitrant to describe the kind of child that I am pretty sure you were, Matt, when you were little. That is, a recalcitrant child is a child who just stubbornly refuses to do what he's told to do. Now, did I hit the nail on the head there? No, you did
1: not. No, I was a very obedient child. Extremely obedient. Oh, okay. I produced, and that's why I survived.
0: (laughs) You just seemed like the kind that was probably pretty wild to me when you were little. That came later. Energetic, energetic. Okay, well, in this book, though, J.P. Moreland, he talks about what he refers to as a a recalcitrant fact. And what he's saying is this, a recalcitrant fact, whatever the fact may be, is a fact that stubbornly refuses to be assimilated within one's worldview, okay? That's, it's an uncooperative fact. It's a fact that just doesn't fit. It's a fact that resists explanation, and therefore, it serves as evidence that the worldview in question just might not be true, okay? If you have a fact, You just cannot find a way to assimilate it within your worldview. You can't find a way to explain it in terms of your worldview. You can't find a way to account for it in terms of your worldview. Um, No matter how hard you try, this recalcitrant fact just sort of sits there like a rock or like an anvil in the throat of your worldview. You understand what I'm saying. It it just won't go down. It, It won't go down. It's like an anvil in the throat. And he argues that the most basic fundamental aspects of our being as human persons you know, and one of them is what we've been talking about today the fact that we believe that human beings have intrinsic value, high value, equal value. But he goes on to talk about others, the most fundamental aspects of our being and experience that is, meaning, um, believing in value, believing in morality, believing that as persons we're more than just chemical processes in our brains, believing that we have freedom, mind, rationality. He says all of these. Are facts that utterly resist, they resist explanation in terms of a purely naturalist worldview. And thus he speaks of the recalcitrant imago dei. Now, what, what we've been talking about today, as I wrap this up, then, this is just one illustration of this recalcitrant imago dei. And I believe that this can be used powerfully in evangelism, because one thing we can be sure of is that our atheist friend made in the image and likeness of God, knows in his heart of hearts that human beings possess inherent value, high value, equal value. He knows that it isn't really true to say a rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. They're all just the same. They're all just mammals. They're all... He knows that it's not correct to say that we have no more value than a cockroach. He knows it in his heart of hearts as, as made in the image of God. And unless he's a member of ISIS, I mean, unless he's just cold to the core, he undoubtedly treats other people as though they possessed this inherent high and equal value. In fact, he, being an atheist, he may have devoted his entire life to fighting to create a world in which every single person is treated with equal dignity, as having high value, equal value, intrinsic value. The problem is, and this is what I'm bringing out here, the problem is, he cannot account for this in terms of his worldview. That is, according to what he says is true of the universe in which we live, he ought to agree wholeheartedly with Ingrid Newkirk in saying that a rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. And you mentioned uh, Darwinians. Darwin himself once wrote, and I'm quoting him, he once wrote that the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. Will almost certainly exterminate and replace throughout the world the savage races. And by civilized races, he meant the Caucasian races. By savage races in the context, he was referring to the Negro, what he that's his word, Negro and Australian races. And... Here's a question, I'll throw it to you. In a a purely materialist universe, how do you know that Darwin wasn't right? How does an atheist, a consistent atheist, know that the races are equal, of equal value? Is he borrowing from a Christian theistic worldview? where all men are created equal and created in God's image and likeness. Is, is he borrowing from that worldview when he goes around believing and treating people as though they were equal? In terms of what he actually says is true of the universe in which we live, how does he know Darwin wasn't right? How does he know?
1: That's a good question. I tell you what a uh, smart atheist would say back. Smart atheists would say, well, what about all these Christian slave owners and colonists uh, who went and uh, eradicated these races? And uh, you know, enslave. I them. think that's an, it. I'm saying that. Yeah, I what, think
0: that's an. Yeah, I think that there's an easy answer. They were living inconsistently with the Christian they world.
1: They were now. living, and that was what I would say. That's bad theology. It doesn't disprove yeah. the existence of God. If anything, it proves the existence of sin. <laughs> right. Uh, um, but yeah, I would also yeah. say. I, I would also say this, um, in the mix of that, um, I would say what Walker Percy said. Uh, when he said that just because Jimmy Swaggart believes in God does not mean that God does not exist, right? That just because there are yeah, fools yeah. and clowns who have espoused theism over the centuries is not a, a, in itself a proof that God does not exist and we are purely material processes and biological machines. Uh, again, yes. why, why, yes. Yes. why do we allow anybody to be born except for the most elite, super intelligent athletes if Darwinism is truly
0: true yeah, yeah. atheistic darwinism yeah, yeah. If, if an atheist a- material materialism is true i'm not talking about the yeah, evolutionary true.
1: not the evolutionary aspect yeah. of darwinism of like you know yeah. um you leave a whole bunch of species and fish in a volcanic lake and suddenly you got a bunch of different kinds of variations i'm not talking about that kind of darwinism i'm talking about things should survive based on yeah. the trajectory of the race that's okay a and we'll kind be quoting
0: We'll be quoting some more in the future from some some good atheists saying those, those same things and saying flat out that we ought to weed out people who are not useful that we ought to that it follows naturally from the Darwinist perspective and saying things like that. Okay, so um, I'm I, I'm lost here. Okay, but but here's the point and with and with this I will close truly uh, truly close because I'm talking about evangelism and and obviously the talks that we're giving are addressed to. Christians in a way. It's instruction, thinking through the implications of atheism, instruction on, on maybe how you can do evangelism. Um, an atheist listening to this is not going to like it because I'm just making these statements that, for instance, that he's made in the image of God and that he knows in his heart hearts and things like that. He's not going to like that. Okay, so I'm speaking to Christians here, but when we find ways to lovingly lead our friends who deny the existence of God or who doubt the existence of God, if we can find loving ways to lead our friends to feel this tension that exists between who they, uh, between what they say is true of the world and who they really are as created in the image of God and, and the things they know, then we are doing the work of evangelism. We're, we are reminding our friend of something that he or she may have forgotten or has suppressed or really knows in their heart of hearts and yet finds it in conflict with what they've come to believe about the, about the universe and we're helping them to remember. Now, they may bite the bullet. They may say, no, what, you know what, I bite the bullet. I agree totally with Ingrid Newkirk. A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. There's no difference in value and you're a speciesist if you think that we should save a human child before saving a rat. They may bite the bullet and, and, and try to become consistent with um, their atheist worldview. On the other hand, often, I think that this could lead them to think again about whether the worldview is true.
1: And again, I think we mentioned this in the last episode. Uh, it's important to ask your atheist friend, does he really believe in atheism? Uh, or ask yourself as an atheist, if you're watching this, if you really believe in atheism, why don't you live as though it were truly true in every aspect of your life? And I'm going to turn that question around just like I'm going to try and turn it around every episode back to the Christians. If you really believe that Christianity is true, (laughs) are you living as though it were in every aspect of your life? Or are you living like a scientific materialist? I mean, these are questions that are Mm -hmm. extremely relevant to anybody who claims to believe in God and uh, that Jesus Christ is his son. And if you're like us, that he founded a church and you should be in it. So. These are relevant questions. Amen. All right, Ken, this is a lot, and there's more. Looking forward to next time. And in the meantime, I hope people check out chnetwork.org to find out more about the Coming Home Network. If you're asking these questions and are probably, you know, in the middle of a whole (laughs) bunch of different thoughts, if you're on a trajectory maybe even towards the Catholic Church, come visit us, uh, chnetwork.org, and visit us in the online community, uh, community community.chnetwork.org. We would love to hear from you. Ken, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week.
0: See you next week.